I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Mersham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saadade 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Apologies for my absence as of late, but I really needed to take a break from the rather wild release schedule I have had for the past few months, especially since October and the outbreak of the Gaza War. So I've slowed down a lot this month. I do have a special edition of the Parallax Vlog with C. Derek Varn coming out for Patreon supporters this month. That's a huge episode, I think around two and a half hours, so... If you're a Patreon supporter, I'm going to make it up to you with that show, hopefully. In any case, uh, I just need a little bit of a break, so I haven't been releasing nearly as much as I did between October and January. But not to fear, Parallax Views is back in action right now with an episode that's very timely. We're going to be speaking with Josie Reisman. A journalist who delved into wrestling's most powerful man, or formerly most powerful man, Vince McMahon, Josie is the author of the book The Ring Master, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. Given the recent sex trafficking allegations that have been made against Vince McMahon and WWE, I thought this conversation needed to take place. Josie has really written an incredible biography of Vince McMahon, going all the way back to his childhood growing up in North Carolina in what amounts to poverty with his mother and 
abusive stepfather. We'll be getting into all that, as well as how McMahon took over the wrestling world. We'll also talk about the Ring Boy scandal. Another case where WWE was accused of being involved in sex trafficking. And Josie will explain the meaning of kayfabe and what she calls neo-kayfabe. Kayfabe is a wrestling term you'll learn all about in the conversation to follow. But Josie makes the case that kayfabe needs to be studied outside of its wrestling context. Oh, by the way, we'll also get into Vince McMahon Sr., and the FBI. Not going to say anything more about that. You'll hear all about it in the conversation to follow. With that being said, let's get right to it with Josie Reisman. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very excited to be speaking with. She is a journalist and the author of a book that is very interesting, especially at a time like this. It's Ringmaster, Vince McMahon, and the Unmaking of America by our guest, Josie Reisman. Uh, And I should note, this book has a a really great blurb from Rick Perlstein, who has written Nixonland and Reaganland. He says, Ringmaster is riveting, essential reading, even if, like me, you have no taste for professional wrestling. And boy, is that true. I am a wrestling fan, but I like that this book got into the nitty gritty, not just the Vince McMahon but also the industry. How are you doing, Josie? I'm doing great. Um, thank you for having me. And yes, I thank you to Rick Perlstein if he's listening to this. It seems like this, this his kind of pod. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, so Josie, I guess where I want to start out, I know that there's all these allegations coming out about Vince McMahon. Uh, even before this, there were allegations. We'll get into that. But mm-hmm. I really want to get into uh, who... A young who the young Vince McMahon was because in a weird way you can almost be sympathetic towards a young Vince McMahon if you've learned a little bit about his story there seems to be a little bit of trauma there but I think it does give an insight into the man so can you talk about his upbringing he wasn't uh you know Mr. New York initially he was from North no, Carolina certainly not yeah no the character he played on television Mr. McMahon is is often thought of as Uh, just an exaggeration of who Vince was. But in many ways, it's much closer to an exaggeration of who his father was, because his father was a rich wrestling promoter from the Northeast. But Vince himself was not raised in the Northeast, nor was he raised by that father. Vince was born as the child of the sort of semi-illegitimate child. It's a long story, but the marriage between the parents was not uh, totally legal. Um, he was the child of this marriage and his father was Vincent James McMahon, who was the heir to a boxing slash wrestling empire. Yeah, that was, it, it was, he's third generation Vince Jr. Just yeah, McMahon so was, there's, okay. Rod, there's Roderick McMahon, who was the first patriarch to come over. And then Roderick had Jess and then Jess had Vincent James and Vincent James had uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, who is the subject of my book. Um, That's not getting into the wives, who are often just as important. Um, But it's just a little easier to remember when it's all the same last name. Um, I'm actually very proud of myself that I nailed that without any notes. Uh, You you, you try to remember those things. But anyway, so um, Vincent James McMahon 
meets during the war while he's in the Coast Guard. He's stationed in North Carolina and he meets uh, a woman by the name of Vicki Hanner. Uh, well, actually, she was Victoria Pataka because she was married at the time to a different soldier. Um, but that soldier was not around. And it appears that Vicky had an affair with this Vincent James. And then uh, they had two children. There was Rod McMahon, who is Vince, Vin, Vince's older brother. Um, and they had Vince. And then Vincent James was out of the picture. Basically, right after the birth, I haven't figured out exactly the date, but pretty much right after Vince was born, uh, Vincent James, his biological father, went back to New York and stayed in New York and D.C., where he ended up putting a stake down for his wrestling empire a little while later. And all the while that Vincent James is doing that, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, his biological son, his second son, is being raised in dirt poverty in North Carolina, of all places, because that's where Vicky was from. In fact, her family had been there since before the, since before the existence of the United States. They were a, a deep, longtime North Carolina family, as was the family of his stepfather, who was the man who raised him for the first, you know, the first three years, there was no man in the picture in particular, but then for uh, about 10 years, that was his father functionally. And in fact, Vince went by the name Vinnie Lupton because his stepfather was named Leo H. Lupton Jr. So you end up with this screwy situation where Vince, I always like to say he kind of represents in his youth, both ends of the Republican coalition in that he is this proletarian from the South who has a lot of resentment about the way he was treated and the poverty that he experienced as a youth. But he's also a corporate scion because at age 12, he meets his biological father, Vincent James McMahon. According to Vince, this was at the urging of Vincent James McMahon's, I'll just call him Vince Sr. from here on out, at the urging of Vince Sr.'s second wife, the person after Vicky, it wasn't even Vince Sr.'s idea, but Vince Sr., ends up getting bullied into meeting young Vince. And it's a very complicated relationship from there on out, from about 1957 until Vincent Vince Sr. dies in 1984. And I really wanted this book to be, A, about how we ended up in American fascism, but B, in a related question, I wanted it to be about fathers and sons and those difficult relationships because Vince ends up telegraphing his difficult relationship with his father far and wide in the form of Mr. McMahon, his character, because Mr. McMahon is this manipulative, ruthless, extremely powerful, rich, Northeastern accented wrestling promoter. And he always says, more importantly, Vince has always said in the rivalry between his character, Mr. McMahon, and the famous Stone Cold Steve Austin, Vinny, Vince has always said, I was Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin was the one that was based on my life and my approach to things. And Vince, Vince Sr. was based on all the people who made me feel small and impoverished when I was young. 
And I couldn't help but think, well, who was making, he wasn't even around rich people 90% of the time. He was living in these poor communities. The richest person he knew and a person who was not afraid to throw around his financial and political weight was his father. So anyway, maybe I'm getting too deep into psychoanalysis, but that plus I'm not even getting into the abuse. The abandonment, I think, is sort of the big crime that really hurt Vince and led to creating this hole that he's tried to fill with a lot of things since then. But also, according to Vince, Leo Lupton physically abused him. And uh, he sort of said that his mother sexually abused him, but then walked that claim back. So it was not an easy childhood. But the last thing I'll say about Vince's childhood is easily the most surprising thing I learned while doing this research was not any of those revelations about crimes, that those I was kind of expecting. What really shocked me was finding out that Vince's portrayal of those young days, of him being a juvenile delinquent, of him being somebody who could not be controlled and was constantly getting into fights and getting in trouble with the law or the school, whatever. That it was wasn't exactly the truth. <laughs> no, it was pretty made up. And I think one of the most interesting things about Vince is you don't get any reports of him doing anything objectionable or devious or even really being that much of a presence in people's lives until he gets into wrestling, until he meets his father at age 12 and falls in love with the art form and industry of wrestling. After that, it's either uphill or downhill, depending on how you look at it. I think I think. Uh... We had to get into his youth there because that's probably the only sympathetic aspect I found about him is sure. the abuse growing up. But um, how did uh, – well, let's get into this. How does he get into the wrestling business through his father? And what was the landscape of the business at the time? Because you you get into uh, both how there was the WWF and also – uh, the NWA, which uh, you described Correct. as cartel. So can you speak yeah, about that landscape? Yeah, it was. I mean – you're asking a lot of questions there, but why don't I start with the NWA and sort of the landscape? Because Vinny uh, starts working for Vince Sr. Um, really in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, after he graduates from college. And at first, he's just doing some low-level work. But then he ends up, you know, where he's sort of going to venues and collecting money and whining and dining sponsors and vendors, et cetera. And then, according to him, he has this one dramatic night where he gets enlisted in actually participating in the show as an announcer, a play-by-play -play announcer, because the previous guy was uh, fired on the spot. Now, it it seems to be, and this is maybe a good window into the way the, the wrestling business operated back then, it seems to be that Vince was actually conflating a few things into one dramatic incident. But the actual structure of what happened is somehow even more intense than the story Vince told. Basically, this announcer, the previous one, had said, I want a raise and I'm in after I deserve a raise. And Vince Sr. had given him the raise, fired him, and then hired Vince Jr. at the rate that was all that was with the raise. So he he wasn't saving any money. He very transparently was telegraphing to everyone, I don't care about the money. That's not the issue. It's you don't screw with me. 
Like you don't negotiate with me. You take what I give you. And now my son gets this and you don't, and nobody else should do that. That was the kind of attitude. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You also, you know, as far back as the fifties and sixties, you have Vince Sr. being tapped by the FBI during a DOJ investigation of wrestling. And Vince Sr. is is caught on tape saying of Dr. Jerry Graham, this heel, this bad guy wrestler that Vince admired. You have Vince Sr. saying, I told him to basically told him to change his story when he testifies under oath to the feds. And the threat was uh, this is Vince Sr. on tape saying this in an FBI transcript. He goes, um, you know where your bread is buttered. If you do this, if you don't do this, I can't remember exactly how you phrase it, you'll be hanging yourself. Um, Self-preservation, question mark, fuck it, period. So that was kind of the attitude that even Vince Sr., who I should add, was regarded as one of the nicest and fairest of all of the wrestling promoters that you could deal with. This was the This was the world he was operating in where that kind of attitude was something that was regarded as, oh, this is a nice one. Because promoters, pro wrestling was this little, and it's, I think, only just now really starting to change maybe. But it's basically, since the late 19th century, been a pocket of the 19th century, of 19th century robber baron capitalism that's been allowed to sort of be somewhat uninterrupted you know, and what's ironic is now we're sort of all going back to robber baron capitalism. So wrestling is looking more and more familiar as a model. Um, but yeah, you had when Vince actually starts working for his dad in the 70s and being uh, an announcer, you have Vince's dad who has the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. And then you have his consortium of competitors, the National Wrestling Alliance, and then sort of a, another competitor that has some extraterritoriality, a little complicated, called the American Wrestling Alliance, the AWA, the NWA, and the WWWF. And Vince Sr.'s WWWF was based in the Northeast, and it was confined to the Northeast because this was a system of regional fiefdoms. You had a promoter in each of a few dozen territories in the United States and Canada, and you didn't screw with that person's territory. You didn't broadcast TV shows there. You didn't do shows there. Again, the AWA was a little bit of an exception, but that was kind of an allowed exception by the time Vince was there. And for the most part, you were confined to your geographic area. And these companies were miserably abusive. I mean, wrestling has never had a union. Wrestlers are always independent contractors. And these days they're independent contractors with exclusivity agreements that don't give them any benefits or anything. They just say, oh, you can't work for anyone else, no matter how badly we're treating you. And there's, you know, ramp, there's historically been rampant drug abuse, rampant sexual abuse, or at least allegations thereof. Real, real quick in that regard, yeah. I, I just wanted to add to that with the sexual abuse thing. And I, I think it's important to understand the pro wrestling subculture. I've been around people in that subculture, and I've always said it really is in some ways still similar to how it was in the carnival days. You know, it, it is a protect the business kind of thing, and it's a very unusual and insular subculture. And one of the things about sexual abuse is, I mean, one of the terms that wrestlers have 
for you know the the women that will go to the hotels uh because they're looking for a night with the wrestler is they call them ring rats i mean i think that says a lot about the sort of culture and how sexual abuse can tie into you're, it. You're being generous because by this point in the, the devolution of language and colloquialisms, wrestlers just call them rats, which is a real thing of a thing <laughs> to call women kind of as a class. Yeah. And also there's another term that I talk about in the book, which was dates back a long time, at least the seventies, if not earlier, which was if you were a journeyman wrestler and you were in a territory where you weren't going to get paid much, or, or at all, very often what would draw you and how the promoter would get you to wrestle is they would give you, quote unquote, payment in pussy. And that meant there would be underage girls, well, girls in general, but a lot of underage ones who were there willing to have sex with you. And you'd drive out for that uh, and maybe for people buying you drinks, but not for the money in the actual match. That's the kind of baseline we're talking about. That's not even getting into sex crimes of any kind. And there's a lot of dead and injured and abused girlfriends and wives in this world um, and rats and referees and announcers and wrestlers. There's a lot of women who have reported being abused within the wrestling industry, whether it's through harassment or in the case of these new allegations against Vince McMahon, assault and even trafficking. One thing I want to get into uh, before we start moving into the uh, current scandals is, sure, you know, pro wrestling, as I said, it's a very insular culture, you know, and it, it very much becomes this sort of brotherhood of, oh, we have to protect the business by any means necessary, protect it from the outsiders. There's this term called uh, kayfabe. Uh, and most people, if you ask them what that means and they know what it means, they'll say, oh, that's, uh, you know, how they do the hill versus baby face thing, the good guy versus the bad guy. Sure. And they, they pretend that it's real, even though it's worked. It's not real. It's not a shoot right. fight. But I think kayfabe is more than that in a lot of ways. Oh, it's I think, way more than that. Well, let's I'm get into a, that. <laughs> I'm a big believer that kayfabe studies should be a broad topic at universities and other institutions. I'm not joking. No one's going to listen to me when I say that. But there should be broad discussion of the phenomenon of kayfabe. Because it's a form of omerta. It's a form of murmurta, but it's also a form of reality warping that the rest of the world has very enthusiastically adopted. Now, kayfabe used to just mean the outward-facing fiction of, pub of pro wrestling, which was telling the public what you are going to see here tonight is real. Now, this was a lie insofar as these matches were predetermined, semi-choreographed, and also, it was a lie in that the the wrestlers were very often not their characters. Those were not reflective of them, or at least they were broad exaggerations of them. But you were supposed to go in there and you were told, everything you see tonight is going to be real. And you suspended your disbelief. Some people believed in it a little more. Some people believed a little less. But that was the bargain. And what I wanted to write about in this book was drawing a parallel to American politics we had a long period, uh, and I'm I'm not gonna claim that I've done granular history on this. I am I'm not an academic historian, but we broadly speaking have had this long period in United States history where it was really hard to kill off 
the dream, the big lie that was being told, which was what happens in Washington, D.C. is representative democracy and the popular will is sovereign in the United States. That was never really true. You can you can talk about, you know, ways in which it was somewhat true, but it was never it was always an ideal to which we, people were aspiring at best. And what has really happened in the past decade in American politics, but in wrestling, it started much earlier, um, is the creation of a new kind of kayfabe, which I gave a little name in the book, which is neo-kayfabe. And neo-kayfabe is what you get after the illusion has been shattered, but money still needs to be made. That's what happens is neo-kayfabe. Because Vince McMahon in 1989 ran into some trouble well, he'd been running into trouble for a while, and that was part of the reason why he ran into extra trouble in February of 1989. But what happened was, oh God, I'm just realizing it was it was just, it was almost exactly right now in the year. It was February of 1989. Vince and his wife, Linda, had been semi-covertly fighting to deregulate wrestling in various states and get out of taxes and health regulations. And they had also been fighting lawsuits and in both of these efforts, they would do official testimony in which they said, wrestling is as real as the circus or the Harlem Globetrotters. It was their little dodge around it. They would say, it's not, it's entertainment. And they started calling it on the air, sports entertainment. But the real breaking point came in 89 when the New York Times found out about the deregulation effort in Jersey and thought it was funny. So the New York Times runs this completely, if you ask me, irresponsible article where they're focusing not on the fact that Vince and Linda are doing the classic Republican tactic of trying to gut regulations and put people in real danger and get out of taxes. Um, they just report on, if I recall the headline correctly, it was, now it can be told, colon, these wrestlers are just having fun. And it was it was just about how wrestling wasn't real. That was the only scoop that they were going for there. And what happens is Neo Kayfabe emerges after this massive New York Times and subsequently there was a New York Post headline as well that was also a big deal. But you have in February of 89, this blow that kills off the illusion at any given wrestling show that you might be seeing something real. You know now there is a huge amount of fakeness. So Neo Kayfabe is what emerges in the mid-1990s, not from Vince initially, but more from Japan and from his rival, the WC, uh, WCW. Um, but Vince really codifies and taps it. It's this notion where you're telling the audience not everything you see tonight is going to be real. No, no, no. You say everything you see tonight is fake. That's why it's safe. That's why you can feel comfortable enjoying it. Oh, and by the way, there might be something real that you can discern while you're watching. And also, maybe something real will accidentally happen. This weird little trick where you say, don't worry, it's all fake, wink, wink, except for the parts that might be real, is reality obliterating. It destroys consensus reality. You don't have any big lie to glom onto and negotiate with. All you are left with is infinite subjective realities where people can watch and go, 
well, I guess that part meant this, or that must have been real. Those two guys probably hate each other. And as long as you're paying attention, as long as you're paying attention, it doesn't matter what's true or false. And that's a really dangerous place to be in. That's the place obviously we're in in politics and to an increasing extent, the culture industry and even business these days. Yeah, I was going to say it's reminiscent. The way McMahon and the WWE uses certain words is very interesting to me. So it's it's not wrestling. It's sports entertainment. They're sports not female wrestlers. They're divas. They're not wrestlers. They're superstars. I mean, it sort of mm -hmm. is like what we see Republicans do where, you know, we'll say, well, that's not true. And you'll that's have not true, say, well, or, that, that <laughs> or that term means something other than what you're saying it is. And we just are are stuck with this weird abuse of the language on top of everything else. But the language was really what I focused on for this book because the visuals are important and I did my best to describe them. But, you know, Vince for a long time was on his program just as the announcer, even after he had bought the company. And I really think whether it was deliberate or not, it was a really genius choice because the announcer, the play-by-play -play person, and often he was the only person in the booth back in those days, they are the ones somewhat subconsciously suggesting to you how you should perceive what you're watching. You're never paying close attention because the visuals are the main thing you're there for, but that murmuring of a voice telling you how you should frame what you're looking at is enormously important. And I do agree that like those weird twists of language are worth paying attention, excuse me, a, a worth paying attention to. They are not merely cosmetic ticks. Although some of them, the specific shape of them are weird ticks that he thinks they sound cool. Most of the time, it's an effort to kind of assert power or assert the fact that he can do whatever he wants with something even as fundamental as language. So with, with regards to that term kayfabe, I, I had a wrestler tell me once, and I, yes. I thought this was very uh, insightful of them. They said it's not just about, you know, uh, keeping the marks or the 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 fans uh, hooked uh, and, and thinking it's real or whatever. It's protecting the industry and the business at all costs, including if that means covering up scandals. Uh, and I think that's Absolutely. a good lead. Absolutely. Yes. Neo kayfabe and kayfabe have so many facets that we could talk about, but one of the most important ones is, yeah, this omerta about the industry. For that, I, I less often use the term kayfabe and more often use a common three-word dictum that is often used in wrestling, which is protect the business. At the end of the day, there is a larger ideal you are all fighting for, and it is wrestling. And you are willing to lay down your body, your life, and your honor for wrestling. That's the key thing. You're willing to lie for wrestling. You're willing to look ridiculous for wrestling. You're willing to debase yourself for wrestling. It's really kind of genius. And that predates Vince. That's the thing. Wrestling, pro wrestling, is an addictive substance in many ways. You talk to any wrestler who's done it more than twice sometimes even just once, and they'll tell you there's no high that can compare to doing a wrestling match. Now, I haven't done one. I'm planning to do a little mini one with my spouse at the paperback book release show, but that's sort of a separate question. But you talk to these wrestlers, they say, once you get in that ring, you are addicted. You need it. So there's this broader sense of like, 
I don't want to screw up my supply. I need this. And after a certain point, you need it financially because you're not qualified for many other jobs. But you you need to keep working both because you need the money and because you've kind of sworn yourself into this society, which is also an addiction. Yeah, and I just wanted to to point out for people that don't know, I mean, this does extend beyond even WWE. You know, there, sure. there's these smaller promotions, like one that uh, I will use as a reference here is uh, Impact Wrestling or TNA. And, you know, they, sure. they're independent contractors too, those wrestlers. And when they get injured, you know, they're out of luck. Um, so, you know, there's been lawsuits over this and other you know, companies like Impact yeah. Wrestling as well as WWE. So there's been fights uh, over oh, the independent yeah. contractor status everywhere. So, I mean, I think the wrestling industry as a whole has its sort of problems because it's insular. But the WWE is the major force. Yes, what do you think? it has been the unipolar force or it was the unipolar force for about 20 years, a little under 20 years. And then recently there's been this other uh, company, AEW, which has entered the scene uh, around the end of the last decade. And it is, in terms of coolness and fan enthusiasm from wrestling heads, it's a serious competitor. In terms of business, it's nowhere near the size of WWE. Well, WWE is like this just global phenomenon yeah, now, it's a making global, deals it's with a the global Saudis. Empire. And, yeah, yeah it, does, it does deals for hundreds of millions of dollars with the Saudi government. It, you know, I mean, Vince Vince's wife, Linda, was in Trump's cabinet and ended up running the Trump Super PAC. I mean, there's a lot of really massive clout that Vince used to have and that WWE continues to have. Since I mentioned the independent contractor issue, and that's come up in multiple court cases, uh, both involving yes. WWE and other promotions, what is this independent contractor status and how is it maybe uh, unbeneficial to the, yeah, the workers? Yeah, I mean, since wrestling's dawn... It has never been unionized and there have never been employee wrestlers. It's always been treated somewhat like the circus or like, you know, uh, a casual, you know, a, a kind of rest, uh, athletic job you can do while doing another job. And the trouble is, it really is very all consuming and can destroy your body very easily, but you don't have employer provided health insurance. And because you don't have a union, you have no negotiating strength. And there have been attempts to try to start a union, but they're always crushed very early on. There's a very deeply embedded um, anti-union bent in wrestling. Now, part of that is because the promoters are so powerful, but I think part of it is also just this protect the business mentality where you don't want to mess with your supply. You need to get your wrestling fix. And if that meant upending the industry and forcing WWE to treat you like an employee and pay all of your, the wrestlers an absurd amount, you can easily be convinced that that would just disrupt the apple cart and everything would get screwed up. But the fact is wrestlers are routinely abused and exploited in ways that industries that have unions and more regulations, simply that doesn't happen as much. So in regards to the latest allegations, we have allegations of sex trafficking. Now, uh, there's a federal investigation. There's also this civil lawsuit from Janelle Grant, but it's not the first time that this company has had sex trafficking allegations, which is, I think that's unheard of. This yep. is the second time. Could you talk about the Ring Boy scandal? The Ring Boy scandal, that, that's a lot yeah. of the book. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these recent allegations from Janelle Grant are about one person being her being trafficked within WWE and that meant abuse and being her photos and videos being shared by Vince with a lot of people allegedly uh, the abuse was alleged to I should say um but yeah this this when people were asking me are you surprised by these allegations I would say I'm shocked but not surprised because the details are shocking but it's part of a larger pattern of allegations that we've heard in the past I mean we'd heard you know, I did a whole report where I tracked down Rita Chatterton, the first female referee in the WWF, and for the first time tracked down somebody who could corroborate her story that Vince raped her in 1986. So we already going back to at least 92 when Rita came forward, allegations of Vince sexually forcing himself on women. Um, we already had plenty of stories about sexual harassment. That all you can see, you can see that on television. I mean, you had Vince McMahon as Mr. McMahon making Trish Stratus, a, a wonderful female wrestler, get down all fours and bark like a dog or wear a bra and panties. And that was just one example where the boss was saying, I need you to do this weird sexual thing for me. And you don't really have an option to say no. Um, but then there's also the Ring Boy scandal, which is kind of an order of magnitude bigger. The Ring Boy scandal was this set of allegations that had to do with the Ring Boy program at WWF, the predecessor organization to WWE. So WWF had these, un these underage boys who had come to help set up the ring and uh, get coffee for the wrestlers, take pictures with the wrestlers, just sort of hang around, do odd jobs and be moral support. And they'd get paid in cash and they would get pictures with the wrestlers and leave. Uh, see the show and leave. And one of those ring boys was a man, uh, by the time he came forward, he was a young man named Tom Cole, who said that while he was underage, he had been sexually approached and abused um, by Terry Garvin, who was the person who ran, oversaw the program, and also said things about Mel Phillips, who was the person who sort of more proximately ran the program and was the person who had initially recruited Tom, allegedly, to be a ring boy. Now, I don't want to get into the gory details, but there were allegations that both of these men were sexual predators towards young boys. And there were also allegations that their boss, Pat Patterson, who was Vince's right-hand man, knew about this, was allowing it, and according to Tom Cole, was even lightly participating in it in sort of some light sexual harassment around the office, which I should say stands in corroboration with some other allegations that have been made about Pat Patterson being a sexual harasser. Um, but the Ring Boy scandal kind of blew up in 1992 when Tom Cole came forward and did some interviews saying I was sexually abused in this pedophile ring at WWF. And it all turned around when there was a legal meeting, there was a lawsuit that was about to be filed and they ended up having a meeting between Vince and Linda on one side with their lawyer, Jerry McDevitt. And on the other side was Tom Cole with his lawyer. And the lawyer was somebody he didn't know very well, that he didn't trust all that much. And what ended up happening was Tom 
rescinded the lawsuit in that meeting. He said, I just want my job back. And what led up to that was, according to multiple sources, Vince McMahon saying, you know, Tom, I really feel for you. I was sexually abused as a child, so I know what that feels like, which, if true, is a pretty in pretty astounding thing to do in a legal negotiation. You know, it's a very craven tactic if that did happen. But again, multiple reports of it. So you end up with Tom Cole rescinding the lawsuit, but the story checks out for the most part. I could get into the details, but basically Mel Phillips and Terry Garvin, by all accounts, did do those things. They just didn't suffer any consequences for it. And there was never any proof that uh, after Tom Cole pulled his lawsuit, there was never any proof that anybody could work with. And the story just kind of died down. But Vince McMahon himself said that he knew Mel Phillips, at least Mel Phillips, was a pedophile, had fired him, and then had rehired him after saying, hey, stay away from the kids. Don't do anything like that again. You understand? This He said this to two different reporters when the story came out in 92. And he hasn't said it since, but when the story was fact-checked for a, a thing that a reporter did a few years ago, Jerry McDevitt did not deny that. So what it seems to be is that there was a pedophile ring at WWF that was abusing underage boys, and Vince McMahon knew about it and did virtually nothing to stop it. Maybe fired Mel Phillips briefly, but that's it does not seem like he took serious action against it. And then he did take serious action to try and get the lawsuit crushed. According to Tom's brother, Lee Cole, who assisted with the whole effort, um, Vince found out through Tom after Tom had sort of capitulated, he found out uh, about other people who were in communication with Tom and Lee who were ready to come forward as having been abused. According to, Tom, to Lee, Vince found out about those people and then intimidated them into not talking. Uh, just for my own curiosity, I wanted to talk about this a bit with the Ring Boy scandal. So sure. before I started looking into it more, um, and I didn't know much about it. I just knew that Pat Patterson was somehow involved. So one of the lines that I always heard was, oh, it, it was a witch hunt against Patterson because he was gay. Uh, that, though, does not seem to be the case. No, that's not true. Patterson was not the main target. I guess you could maybe argue that about Murray Hodgson, the announcer who briefly worked for WWF and had worked for the World Bodybuilding 40. No, not the WWF. What was it? I can't remember the other job he did. All of a sudden, I'm drawing a blank. I think it was the World Bodybuilding Federation, another Vince project. But this announcer, Murray Hodgson, came forward and said he had been sexually harassed by Pat Patterson and that he'd lost his job as a result. And that came out around the same time. So in 92, there was this flurry of allegations against the WWF that came out in 92. So it may be that people are conflating those, but they really shouldn't because the, the Ring Boy scandal, no one has made a serious refutation of it. People just try to keep moving on from it and not talk about it. But there's never been a serious refutation that those things didn't happen. There were just a few more things I want to touch upon. Sure, can, go ahead. Uh I wanted to ask you about Linda McMahon. Uh, yes. Since you said the women are, are just as important as as the men in this story, uh, what do we know about Linda McMahon? And also, I, I ask this for a specific reason. I mm -hmm. think a lot of people will say, oh, Linda's like the, the good woman to McMahon's bad guy. Who and says I that? I mean, here's <laughs> the thing. People will say Linda is a good Republican compared to Trump's bad Republican. 
That's the key thing. Linda, I would argue, is smarter and a more canny operator than Vince ever was. She doesn't have the creative forces and juice that Vince has historically had. And she certainly never got into a wrestling ring to actually wrestle in the way Vince did. But she did perform in the show uh, sufficiently to build a profile and ended up with this very important political career. And I bring up the good Republican, bad Republican thing, because I think it's really important to note that Linda, I can't remember the exact vote tally, but she was the only cabinet member that got significant of Trump's that got significant Democratic votes because people really looked at Linda McMahon as a moderate. And then what did she go around and do? In 2020, she ends up running the biggest pro-Trump super PAC. You know, there's nothing moderate about Linda McMahon, maybe her mannerisms, but when it comes to her ideology, I don't see anything moderate about it. I don't know that she has any personal animosity against queer people, but she certainly doesn't mind throwing us all completely under the bus by backing this fascist candidate. So, you know, Linda, Linda's from North Carolina. She's from New Bern, which is the town where um, Vince's stepfather was from, and he was living around there with his stepfather and mother, and he ended up at age 16 meeting a 13-year-old in the church choir that his mother was singing in, and that 13-year-old was Linda Marie Edwards. And they ended up dating. They always sort of skip over what happened between then and when they were both of legal age and got married, um, but take that as you will. They got married. They went to college together. She was younger than him, but sort of took an advanced track. So they graduated together. She had Shane, um, their first child. She had Stephanie. And she was also the co-parent of the WWF, really, in its Vince McMahon incarnation, because she and he were the co-owners of Titan Sports, which was the entity they created to buy well, initially to buy the Cape Cod Coliseum in South Yarmouth, Massachusetts, but then eventually that's the entity that buys the WWF from um, from Vince's father, Vince Sr. So Linda, from the very beginning of the wrestling career, is holding up half the sky because she actually knows how to do business. Vince is not necessarily the greatest at negotiations or corporate partnerships, whatever, it's not that he's necessarily awful at it, but that's not his gift. His gift is creative and charisma. But Linda really has been a very canny operator in the boardroom and has accomplished a great deal. I really don't underestimate her contributions. If she doesn't show up in the book as much as she should, it's only because she's so hard to find anything conclusive out about. I only had so much time on this book and I had to focus on Vince. So I did not put all of my efforts into Linda, but I wish I'd had time to because she really is an elusive enigma. She, despite running for Senate twice and being a cabinet member, is very little researched. There are very few articles, let alone books, that can tell you anything substantive about Linda McMahon, despite the fact that she is a massively important political player. No, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think that's the issue is, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people let Linda off the hook, but she was even... um. She was at the Donahue show where uh, Tom Cole was supposed to show That's up. That's correct. This yes. is after I think Tom Cole had come He'd to an recanted. agreement with man. Yeah. He had recanted, and the idea was he was going to have one of those classic daytime '90s talk show moments where he was going. If somebody brought up the Ring Boy scandal on the panel that included Vince McMahon, the plan was for Tom Cole to 
jump up in the audience and go, that man, you know, pointing to whoever was accusing Vince McMahon, that man's a liar, you know, like Vince McMahon is a good man who gave me my job back. And everybody would clap and go crazy. But it, as it worked out, they never ended up talking about the Ring Boy scandal in any kind of substantive way. So there was no real moment for that to happen. But Tom Cole was in the audience. Yeah, and I know that uh, I mean, there's an interview on a website called Wrestling Perspective where Linda yes. uh, helped give him money uh, that story gets so that. complicated. Yes. After I didn't get into all that. I wish I could. And maybe I will in the sequel to Ringmaster, which hopefully will happen. But yeah, the Tom Cole story continued long after the end of the lawsuit and the capitulation of Tom Cole. The lawsuit story ends, but then Tom Cole continues to have this relationship with the McMahons for years where they're funding him going to college and then he really has to drop out of college because he's had such an awful, uneducated life and doesn't have any familiarity with structures like that. So, like, of course, it's not going to work. And they end up punishing him for that. And, you know, when he the minutes before he killed himself, he had a phone conversation with his brother, Lee, and he said, I can't read the exact quote because it's not right in front of me, but he said of the McMahons, Lee, if anything happens to me, I want you to go after those bastards. You know, that was how deeply Tom Cole resented the way he'd been treated by the McMahon family. Now, I should say the suicide is complicated because it turned out afterward that he had a brain tumor and that was something that was probably affecting him. So it's not as simple as, you know, the McMahons drove him to suicide. But I think it's significant that in his moment of crisis, even as his brain was having its difficulties, it tapped into this vein of I really can't stand what they did to me. Yeah, and the the only reason I brought that up is just to say that I think a lot of people would just look at Vince, but I think the whole family is uh, a well. That's my plan. They're operators. Absolutely, you know? that's my plan with the, the sequel. My plan, you know, especially since these recent allegations, I've been thinking there's no way I'm going to be able to just focus on Vince and his psyche in the same sustained way that I did in the first one. Mainly just because I don't want to look into that that world solely and only because I don't know that my mental health can take it. So my plan is to really focus on the quintet of the McMahon inner circle, which is Vince, his family, basically Vince, Linda, Shane, his son, Stephanie, his daughter, and Triple H, Paul Levesque, who is Stephanie's husband, the father of Vince McMahon's grandchildren, and a longtime wrestler and executive. Now a C-suite executive even after the departure of Vince, which must make holiday dinners very awkward. But yes. Uh, just two more things here. The first is sure. one of the people I know that you interviewed extensively for this book was Brett the Hitman Hart, who is like a legend in the wrestling world. And he recently came out and said he he cannot respect McMahon after everything he's read about this lawsuit and whatnot. Uh, since he's in the news lately. He's in the news because of me. I interviewed him. That was my interview. I got the exclusive. I inter I texted Brett a few days after the allegations had come out. I said, wild times, A, to him just to see what he thought of it. And he texted me some very eloquent, interesting thoughts about um, what was going on. And I said, if you want to go on the record, just let me know, because I think you could have a real impact. Now, initially, I was going to write this for the New York Times opinion section, 
But although my editor there was a wonderful guy, he got screwed over by the larger editorial leadership there. And it, long story, they based, I had already written a New York Times opinion piece about wrestling a year prior, and they thought that was enough, even though this article has nothing to do with that other article. So I ended up taking it to Slate. And Slate ran this piece based on my interview with Bret Hart when he decided to go on the record and denounce Vince. And I was really fascinated by, sorry, it's my cat howling in the background, if you can hear that. Um, but I was fascinated by the responses I got from Bret. Bret was inc incredibly forceful in his denunciation of Vince and the WWE. You know, Bret had a long, complicated history with those, with Vince and with, the company. He was screwed. His brother was, uh, you know, brother died in an under-rehearsed zipline accident. Lots of really terrible things along the way for Bret Hart that were doled out by Vince McMahon. But as of when I wrote the book, he was still kind of starry-eyed about Vince McMahon and would say, I think of him as a father figure. He talked about calling him the night before he went under the knife for cancer surgery. And this time it's different. These allegations were too much for him. They pushed him over the edge and he said, I can't, you know, I, I don't mind people kicking his head around the parking lot because I think he's awful and I wouldn't shake his hand, you know, really laid into him and was particularly disgusted by one allegation that we won't get into, but thought the sex act described in this rape, this alleged rape was too much for him to handle and he couldn't conceive of being friends with Vince McMahon anymore or, and he felt embarrassed for having respect for him in the past. And more importantly, he apologized to Rita Chatterton for discrediting her story in the past. So I think maybe a sea change is happening, but Brett is kind of at the forefront. Well, I wanted to ask you, when, when you were interviewing him specifically for the book, what was the greatest insight that you got from Brett Hart while hmm. you were doing the book? Insight. Depends what you mean by insight, but I think his self-insight about seeing Vince McMahon as a father figure took a lot of guts to say. And I really, I was, I was really, that interview where he talked about calling him, calling Vince right before he went in for cancer surgery, that was, that was a really incredible moment to hear somebody recall and try to process. So yeah, I guess the insight of him understanding that his relationship with Vince is intimately tied up in a father-son relationship, and in some ways a recapitulation of the relationship that he, Brett, had with his father, Stu, who had abused him as a child, but Brett always forgave that abuse. You know, all of it comes together, and in that insight, saying, I always think of Vince as that father figure, I think he really told me a lot that allowed me to structure the book subsequently. With regards to that sort of father-son relationship, despite everything that Vince has done to him, there was the whole Montreal screw job. We don't have to get into that, but people can look it up. There was Owen Hart's death. There's a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, tragedy in the Hart family, and a lot of it, you know, arguably involves Vince McMahon Vince and McMahon. WWE. Uh, so... What do you think it is about Vince McMahon that he's able to sort of uh, exert this control over these wrestlers? You know, even once he screws over, they'll say, well, I, I'm still starry eyed about him. What, what do you I mean, think? it's it's I would say with at the risk of trying to be more psychologist than journalist, it's abuse dynamics. I mean, Vince was very likely abused by a father figure. He was definitely abandoned by another father figure. 
And he knows intimately what that feels like and what that produces in a person. He's talked about it. Um, and I think a lot of, the, I mean, my spouse had this sort of dark joke at one point, which was as I was, she's my frontline editor. So I was doing these little mini profiles within the book of characters as they get introduced. And with every male wrestler who has a significant portion of this book, there was a section at the beginning where I was like, and they were abandoned and or abused by their father. And that was really hard for them, but also they forgave their father. And that is this recurring thing. My spouse would say, you got to cut the, the parental abuse. Like, it's just not as, you know, the child abuse is not as, as uh, it's becoming rote. And I think that's the point is it's very often men who have had abusive relationships who have been abused, often by father figures, they find in Vince a familiar template and they feel really comfortable with him. And then there's also the ring addiction. You can't underestimate the degree to which he's able to exert control over people because he just controls the supply of wrestling. And if you want to be a wrestler, you have to deal with Vince. Now that's not true anymore, but for about 40 years, that was increasingly the case. And for about 20 of those years, it was pretty much inarguable, but it seems like the chain, the page is turning. The tide is changing. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. In closing, uh, what do you hope listeners get out of the book and, and how would you tie all of this together with regards to the current scandal? What do you, what's your uh, thoughts on what is transpiring? Well, right you now? can't fact check a fascist. That's sort of the main takeaway from this book is that it's, it's impossible to stop somebody who has given up on shame and who has rejected the idea of modern virtue, you can't stop them by just throwing virtue at them. They have armor that keeps that away. They've already said, hey world, I'm a liar and a bad person. And then when they go out and do things, lie or do bad things, they can just get away with it because the rest of the public shrugs and goes, well, they told us what they were. And that liar thing, well, that kind of confuses me. And now that I'm confused, I'm just going to stop thinking about it. Or now that I'm confused, I'm going to pay close attention and become addicted to it. You know, it's this real hack. So I feel like the main thing I want people to take away was don't try to fact check fascism, just create alternative institutions and do better. Um, but what was the other question? I feel like you were asking me two questions there. Well, I, I, I was asking list. how you would tie it all together. And, I would and tie it together. Yeah. I mean... I don't think anyone who reads my book is going to find these allegations surprising. Let me put it that way. They're of a piece with a lot of other allegations that have come out in the past. So I would tie it together by saying these allegations are part of the Vince McMahon story. And I tell a great deal of the Vince McMahon story in this book. I'll warn people, the book ends the core narrative in 1999 because I had a strict word count and Vince's life is very interesting and a lot has happened. So I ended in 99, but I'm planning to write a sequel after Vince passes away. And that one will go from 99 up until whenever that is. Well, hey, Josie, I want to thank you for coming on. I hope people will check out the book Ringmaster. And uh, anything else you want to say here? We didn't really get into the Trump connection that much. If, if you want to oh, comment yeah, on that. There's plenty there. I mean, if you want to learn more about this, just read the book. The The book is, you can go to ringmasterthebook.com or you can go to my website. And um, that is josie.zone, J-O-S-I-E dot Z-O-N-E. And 
poke around. If you just look for Josie Reisman or Abraham Josephine Reisman wrestling, you'll find plenty of material out there where I talk about Trump. Um, but yeah, that's an important connection too. Are are they more close than than people may suspect at yes, first? Yeah, yeah, they were they were very close. I mean, Vin, Trump has been watching McMahon family wrestling since he was in his youth in the fifties. And he's been a big fan of Vince's brand of wrestling and a participant in that wrestling for decades now. He was in a WrestleMania. He hosted two other WrestleManias. He's attended countless wrestling events. He's participated in the ring. I mean, amazing stuff. And I think it was very influential on Donald, but they also became very close friends. I mean, they first met at a Rolling Stones concert in 1981, which is the most boomer thing you can think of uh, in New Jersey, no less. And since then, they've been very close to the point where Sam Nunberg of the Trump campaign from 2016 told me that during the campaign, there were only two people in the world that Vince would shoo everybody out of the room to take calls with. Usually Trump likes to showboat and put people on speaker. It doesn't matter if they're like a golf pro or a foreign leader and they'll just he'll put them on speaker and say, yeah, talk to me so everyone can see him dick them around. But there were two people that he would force everyone to leave the room so he could talk to them in private. And those were Mark Burnett, the producer of The Apprentice and Vince McMahon. And I think it's no coincidence that both of those men are deep reality warpers who have had hidden hand influence on a broad swath of American culture and politics. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Josie Reisman and that you'll check out the book Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do on Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon. I know I've slowed down with the content in the past month, but I really do need your help to keep this show going. If it wasn't for you, the listener, and my one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson, I could not do this full time. Uh, I know I've been taking a break, but I hope to get back into the swing of things as we enter the spring season. Really though, I do need your donations to keep this show going, so go over to patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews if you'd like to make a donation. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. 
afraid. I'm not afraid.